And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do we know that? And what does it mean, really? That verse, when taken on its own, can mean a number of things to a number of people. Some people have taken it to mean, for those who love God, nothing bad ever really happens. But is that true? In fact, we need to know the whole context, all the verses that we read around Romans 8.28, even though they have great, big, huge theological terms in them. We can read them. We can understand it better. It's actually a word of comfort to those who are suffering more than it is just a power of positive thinking. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That verse means so much to me that Nancy and I, while we were getting engaged ten and a half years ago, we had a couple of things inscribed on the inside of our wedding bands. It says, March 12, 2005, and there's a cross, and then it says Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's right there on the inside of our wedding bands. And interestingly, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I walked into the bedroom where Nancy was, and she looked at me, and she had just been listening to a sermon on podcast from another preacher on Romans 8.28, and she said, you know, I think Romans 8.28 means something that I didn't used to think it means. She said, you should listen to that sermon. <laughs> I love it when Nancy spends time with other ministers. <laughs> because she learns a lot from them, the things that I have been saying to her all along. No, just kidding. I did learn a lot from that sermon as well. So what does it mean? Does it mean something different than you previously thought? We have to see it in context. Like I said, there's these great big theological terms that sometimes we shy away from. Maybe that's why we just read Romans 8.28 on its own, because we don't want to go to the next verse where it talks about predestination. So we just keep Romans 8.28. But in fact, it's all in the context, speaking a word of comfort and hope and purpose to those who are suffering. So my job today is to try to expose it to you in all of what it says in a way that we all can understand, to bring it out of the cerebral theological world right into the daily practical lives. And I have a sentence that I think summarizes the whole section of the chapter, and it goes like this. God has an eternal plan for your life that gives hope to your suffering and purpose to your pain. I think that's what this section of Romans 8 can teach us, is that God has an eternal plan for your life that gives hope to your suffering and purpose to your pain. Let's look at the text to see how it supports that. When I say God has an eternal plan for your life, I'm going to read for you Romans 8, 29 and 30. We're starting at the end, right after Romans 8, 28. If you ever wonder, does God have a plan for my life? It's written right here, and it's eternal. I want you to pay attention to the words in it. I'm going I'm to use my own words for it in just a moment. Pay attention to these words in Romans 8.29 and hear the eternal timeline that God has for your life. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now I have to stop there because a lot of you are going to get hung up on the word predestination. Think of it in this particular verse as the word chose. This is a word of comfort, remember. There's other places in Romans where he's going to spell out what he means by predestination. It's not happening here. So just think of the word chose, okay? So let me start over. 
those whom he foreknew, he also chose to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he chose, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the timeline here? It begins with foreknowledge. It begins with God's knowledge of you before time ever began, and it extends all the way to glory. That's God's eternal plan for your life. It begins with him knowing about you before you were born, choosing you, predestining you for a mission, being conformed in his image, which we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes, calling you like he called our two interns to be with us this summer, justifying you, meaning he died on the cross to forgive your sins, to forgive you every time you mess up in your calling, but also glorifying you, bringing you into glory forever. You never again need to ask your pastor, what's God's plan for my life? Because it's spelled out right here, and it's eternal. But a lot of us, we expect something like Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. We expect that to come in a much shorter timeline, don't we? Sometimes I walk into the room where my children are watching television, and we don't have regular TV in our house. We have Netflix, so there's no commercials, which means the episodes are even shorter than when I was a kid. They're about 21 minutes long. And I recognize that in all of their episodes of the children's shows, all the conflict gets resolved within 21 minutes. And honestly, that's kind of a about the time span, about the attention span that I've come to expect all things to work together for good. <laughs> Aren't we all that way a little bit? We're in a current episode of our life and we say, but God, it says in your word that for those who love you, all things work together for good. And we have about a 21 minute attention span. And when that's passed, we say, where is God? But in fact, he has our life on an eternal timeline. And maybe the good in that sentence, we're not even going to see it until glory. God has an eternal plan for your life, but also in the here and now, he gives us hope for our suffering. He gives hope to our suffering. Remember verse 18, uh, it couches the whole thing here in the context of suffering. It says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Christians living in Rome in the first century. And the Christians living in Rome in the first century understood suffering way better than we do. If they proclaimed Christ in the public square, they were persecuted, they were imprisoned, they were shushed. Their suffering was real, and Paul is writing this letter to them as a word of comfort. And I just like to picture Paul in his office, in his study, with his pen in hand, writing this letter to the Romans, thinking about their suffering, thinking about all the things that they're going through, and trying to communicate to them that their suffering, as real as it is, is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to them. And so he says, he says that sentence, and then he says, we eagerly wait for what's to come. And then I picture him sitting there thinking, how can I illustrate this to them? How can I paint them a picture that really explains this idea that our sufferings that we're experiencing now are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. And I picture him sitting there thinking, I've got it. A pregnant woman. A woman who's come to full term, who's now in labor. 
verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is an illustration from the Bible. I know it's uncomfortable for us to think about. I know it's vivid, but go ahead and picture it in your mind. Picture a woman in labor. Can you see her? The sweat, the writhing in pain, the crying out, indeed, the groans. Now, if you were to walk into the room where there was a woman in labor and you didn't know that she was in labor, all you saw was all those symptoms, what would you say? This doesn't look good. There's no hope for her. But if suddenly somebody whispered to you, she's in labor, then suddenly you'd be looking at the very same situation and all you would see is hope. Because all of those labor pains are pointing to something that is to come, the birth of a new life. Paul is saying that's what it's like when you look out and you see all the turmoil, all the pain, all the sweat, all the crying, all the groaning. Think labor pains. Because labor, intense and horrible as it is, it lasts five hours, ten hours, in some cases 20 hours or more. It's actually short compared to the lifespan of the child that comes. So Paul is saying to the Christians suffering in Rome, look out your window, see the suffering, and know those are labor pains. And it means that Christ is coming back soon. There's a new life about to come. And this word is spoken to us as well, those of us who have cable news on in the home. And they're showing the clip of the whatever horrible thing they caught on camera that day over and over and over again. You can look at that and you can say, labor pains. And then you can pray, come Lord Jesus. Because I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then the amazing thing where he goes from there in verse 23, he says, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. Because we don't need to have cable news on to know that there's pain and turmoil going on inside our own hearts. And Paul is saying in the same way, that the whole creation's in labor pains, we too are experiencing pain like that of a woman giving birth. And it says that the Holy Spirit comes in and it enters, it gives us a new cry, it gives us a new groan, the groan of labor pains, where we await eagerly what God is going to reveal when Jesus Christ comes back. Isn't that an amazing, vivid illustration? We can look at the same situation, the same scene, and instead of saying there's no hope here, we can see nothing but hope. So this illustration is, is kind of funny to me because in the previous paragraph, like we heard last Sunday from Pastor Chuck, it says all of us are like sons getting adoption. So all of us guys last week were like, yeah, even ladies have to be sons. Well, now in this paragraph, we're all pregnant women. <laughs> so you can tell your family and coworkers when you go back to work this week, Pastor said I'm pregnant. But that's really what it's saying. It gives us a new perspective on the pain, on the turmoil, on the suffering that's going on. It no longer is hopeless. It now has hope because it all points towards he who will come and he who will come soon. God has an eternal plan for your life. And it gives hope to your suffering and purpose to your pain. Purpose to your pain. That comes from verse 29. It says he foreknew you and he predestined you. He chose you for a mission. Did you catch what the mission was in verse 29? What's God's plan for your life here and now? To be conformed 
to the image of the Son. In other words, God chose you since before time began for a mission that you would become more like Jesus. And who can help us understand purpose in pain more than Jesus? We need to look no further than the cross of Christ to see that pain can have a purpose. If you were to walk up to Jerusalem the day that Jesus was dying on the cross, just like if you were to see that woman in labor not knowing she was about to give birth, if you were to see Jesus dying on the cross and somebody said to you, that's an innocent man dying, you would say, there's no purpose in this. This is just suffering for the sake of suffering. But if suddenly somebody said to you, that's the Son of God, and he is suffering under the wrath of the Father so that all people would be able to receive the forgiveness of the Father. You would see nothing but purpose. You're looking at the same scene, and at one moment you see purposelessness, then you see purpose. Because there's purpose in the pain of Christ, and our mission, it says here, is to be conformed to that image. That our lives, if we ever are experiencing pain for the sake of Christ, we're becoming like Jesus. Jesus spent his whole day, his whole mission, his whole life here on earth laying down his life for the sake of others. And our job is to be like him, not to always self-advance, not to avoid pain, but to lay down our lives to live sacrificially for the sake of other people. Do you know what this looks like when you are living in a way, when you love God, when things are working together for good, when you're called according to his purpose, when you're being conformed to his image, when you're finding purpose in pain? I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the hospital room with Rocco and Joanne. And Rocco, you noticed he hasn't been here in a little while. He's been uh, suffering this horrible sickness where he's been having surgery and so forth. It's been very hard on them. And I was in the hospital room a couple of weeks ago, and Joanne said something amazing. There she was, the wife of a husband who's suffering and in pain. And she said, you know what God is doing right now in me through all of this? She said, Nathan, I feel totally out of control in my life. But I'm also at peace. And then she said, I consider that a miracle on par with Jesus walking on water, that I feel out of control and at peace. You see, Joanne was finding purpose in the pain. God was maturing her. God was giving her more faith. God was giving her dependence on him in the hospital room where her husband was suffering. That's what it means that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Even suffering, even pain can bring hope and can bring purpose. And it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It gives us a new thing to cry. If you consider the alternative, if we are living without God, if we're living without the Holy Spirit inwardly in us, teaching us that it's labor pains that point to hope and purpose, we're really just complaining. Things go wrong. We're in pain. We're suffering, and we complain about it. But the Spirit teaches us how to groan in the pains of labor, eagerly awaiting the new life that is to come. Do you see the difference between those two things? Without God, you're just complaining about what's going on in the world. With God, you're groaning in the pains of labor, saying, come, Lord Jesus, bring hope to this situation, bring purpose to my pain. I would rather live that way, wouldn't you? God has an eternal plan for your life. It brings hope to your suffering and purpose to your pain. We know that all things work together, 
for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. As you know, we've been tracking through Romans 8, and this is the last sermon in the four-week series. But if you're really paying attention, you know that there's some more verses at the end of chapter 8. And I was sitting in my study this week trying to think about how I would conclude the Romans 8 series for us and what words I could put on these last few verses that would help us understand them. And I couldn't think of anything more powerful, more profound, more poignant than what it actually just says verse by verse. So that's how we're going to conclude the Romans 8 series. I'm just simply going to read God's word to you, these last nine verses. They'll be familiar. These words will be familiar to some of you. I'm just going to read them slowly, and if you like to follow along, if that's how you can just let it soak in, or if you want to just close your eyes and hear God's word, let God's word dwell in you richly and hear these words. At the end, I'll just say amen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes, said, Amen.